But I have to say, America is nerdy. Everybody has an inner nerd. America, get in touch with your inner nerd. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by FP's managing editor for news, Laura Jakes. FP columnist Rosa Brooks, senior Future of War fellow at New America, professor at Georgetown University, and author of How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. And from Cambridge, Massachusetts, home of the Eastern liberal conspiracy, David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. Feel free to drop us a line at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com if you have any ideas or comments. And by the way, before we get too deeply into this, I do want to thank all of our listeners. Our most recent look at the ratings such as they are of podcasts indicate that there are now, and I'm sorry to end the joke that's lasted for a year, uh, that there were 11 listeners. There are now 53,000 listeners of this podcast, Mm. make it one of the most listened to podcasts of its kind. Uh, We are grateful for your participation and and tell your friends because we're not satisfied with this. Not once we crossed the 11 hurdle, we are now shooting for the stars. Well, we need to uh, adopt the new slogan that one of our listeners suggested, which is make America nerdy. Hashtag make America nerdy. Make America nerdy. Uh, First of all, I don't know that we have to go that far. Look anywhere. Most Americans are nerds. Uh, In their hearts, they're nerds. Hmm. If they're not already nerds, they aspire to be nerds. They want to be like Rosa Brooks. Hey, wait a minute. (laughs) Recently, in our tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So this is going to be kind of lightning round, guys. I want to throw out a few ideas that have been bubbling around uh, that have to do with foreign policy one way or another and get your take on them. So the first one I want to get a take on, Mosul. We have troops on the ground there. I think it's kind of interesting. It's kind of an interesting twist because the main troops are Iraqi troops that are, of course, getting advice from Iran. Uh, there are Shiite militias among the Iraqi troops. There is a kind of big Iranian influence there, it seems to me. Uh, and, and here's the United States fighting alongside, acting as advisors. Um, The question are, what's the state of play? And what does this mean for the immediate future? Lara. So immediate future is kind of up to interpretation, right? This is a fight that is probably going to take a long, long time. Anybody who thinks this is going to be done by Election Day, maybe even by the end of the year, is going to be sorely disappointed These types of campaigns are hard. They're going to be bloody. There's going to be a lot of starts and stops. There's going to be a lot of push and pull. And so people just need to be patient. If they want to come out and get a quick hit, that's just not going to happen. Um, As far as Shia militias going into Mosul, it's really important to remember that Mosul is a Sunni-dominated city um, of several million people. Um, And there have been a lot of problems in the recent five years with just Iraqi troops going up and trying to secure Mosul because the majority of Iraqi troops are also Shia. And this is is one of the things that caused a lot of problems for the former prime minister, Nouri al-Maliki, and one of the reasons why he was asked to step down. Um, So the current 
Prime Minister Hadi al-Badi is going to have to show that he can, in fact, ensure the people of Mosul that they will be protected even as these Shia forces are going in to fight ISIS. Otherwise, you're going to have people who are saying, well, maybe ISIS is going to be even better than the Shia army, the Shia militia. I doubt that will actually be, you know, at the very end, I doubt that will happen because people in Mosul have been living under ISIS for two plus years now. They've seen their fellow citizens thrown off of buildings. They've seen executions um, by beheading. They've seen, they've had to live under huge atrocities um, and taxes um, that they just never thought were going to happen, especially since uh, the the last, the, the invasion in 2003. So, I suspect that the people of Mosul will support this offensive. We are seeing ISIS start to push to the east and down south, down to Kirkuk, which is a city that is split between Sunni and Kurds. Um, They may be trying to get more Sunni buy-in because the Sunni in Kirkuk have tried to keep Kirkuk for themselves. It's a split city. The Kurds also want control of Kirkuk, where there is a huge oil windfall to be had. So... I suspect ISIS is a little bit on the run, but they may be able to regroup if uh, they are allowed to squeeze the balloon east and keep heading south. Rosa. Yeah, I, I think that the point that I'd really draw out of that and, and emphasize is that anyone who thinks that this will be decisive in some sort of quick or permanent way is is kidding themselves. Uh, I think that the word to keep in mind uh, – is inconclusive, or two words, inconclusive and messy. It's been inconclusive and messy. It's going to stay inconclusive and messy. Uh, I think that while clearly if Mosul can be retaken, it's symbolically important. Uh, and But at the same time, whether that makes some, you know, that's, it's not like that it makes some magic difference in the stability of the region or the stability of Iraq uh, or the resiliency of the current Iraqi government. Uh, it's it would be a good thing if we can get ISIL out of Mosul, ISIS out of Mosul. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's kind of hard to say. Or even the Islamic State or out the of the Islamic Mosul. State out of or Mosul. Even Dash. It's a little bit easier to say. Or Daesh <laughs> out of Mosul. Um, but but it's it's not going to it's not going to be some sort of uh, dramatic change one way or the other. I think. David Sanger. I think that one of the really interesting questions. I agree with everything that uh, has been said here. Is what is ISIS after Mosul? Let's assume for a minute that. Sooner or later, they are driven out. And at that point, they don't have very much territory to hold. And if you listen to their own public statements these days, they're already talking about an ISIS that uh, does not have territory, which, of course, is the antithesis of what the Islamic State was supposed to be about. They were supposed to be a real state with real territory. So the question is, how do they attract their followers How do they express their power and how do they finance themselves if they don't have significant real territory? Now, the one answer may be they move more to Syria and that creates even more troubles given what's going on uh, right now. Uh, Another answer is that they become a more traditional terror group that tries to go um, attack abroad. Uh, and that the the outflow from Mosul will be felt again in Europe or perhaps even here in the United States, though right now they don't seem to have that kind of, of significant reach. But I think, you know, the, the question for the next administration is not only how do you stabilize Iraq after this is over, 
but how do you finish off a very different kind and reconfigured ISIS? Or, or does it matter whether you can finish them off? I mean, I, you know, there are various possible futures here. Uh, one of them, ISIS ceases to hold territory, becomes more like a traditional terrorist group, uh, but like al-Qaeda and other groups before it, uh, proves hard to eradicate because it simply morphs into other smaller splinter groups in the end. I mean, I mean, I'm not sure it's I'm not sure that we will ever be rid of it in one way, shape or form or another. Um, I think it may it may it will change, but it's not going to go away. It will be under other names uh, and there will always be. You know, I think once you've got that ideology out there, uh, it's it's available to angry people the world over, and uh, it's probably better to fi- better to figure out in the long run how we're going to manage uh, the next few decades living in a world in which there will continue to be terror attacks from groups that are like ISIS, rather than to focus on how do we defeat ISIS as such once we, once it's no longer primarily territorially based. And the West really needs to take a look back at very recent history to see how the fight against ISIS might play out, ISIS or the Islamic State or Daesh or whatever we want to call it today, because five years ago, we were calling it the Islamic State in Iraq. And five years ago, uh, the the military was ready to declare victory over the Islamic State in Iraq. I remember being in Mosul in 2009, 2010 and being told by the, the brigade up there that we've got them on the run. They're so small here in Mosul. They barely exist. You know, this is done. And by the time the military pulled out in 2011, the, the banner was, uh, if not literal, it was figurative mission accomplished in Iraq. And all it really took was for the eye to be taken off the ball and the Islamic State grew out of uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq and just ran with it. And that could very well happen again. You know, one question that I throw out maybe that you or David can answer uh, is how much money does ISIS still have? Obviously, a year ago, ISIS was very, very rich, uh, uh, which is part of what made it so terrifying. Uh, On the one hand, clearly ISIS has had to run through a fair amount of cash in the last year or so, but but I think one question about its 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 viability as an organization moving forward in the next few years is to what extent is it is it even if it loses territory still extremely well funded uh, uh, as a result of of all the captured stuff it's gotten over t- over time versus to what extent do we think that ISIS is also not only running out of territory but running out of cash. Uh, I actually don't know the answer to that question. It's something we should definitely be looking into. I mean, ISIS is their their cash cow for a long time, um, even before al-Baghdadi and and the start of of ISIS, literally, uh, was kidnappings. They would, al-Qaeda in Iraq would kidnap people and take ransom. And so that was a lot of money. When the Islamic State overran Mosul in 2014, they seized banks in Mosul, seized millions of dollars that way. I have been told recently that some of the oil pipelines that they were trying to sabotage in order to sell oil on the black market, uh, A, it's no longer really happening because I think a lot of the oil flow is stopped. But B, the market, the oil market is so overglutted right now that uh, black market oil is not getting a lot of profit. So I don't know, maybe David Sanger or David Rothkoff, you know better than I, I don't know what the online um, cash crowdsourcing or, or crowdfunding campaign for for ISIS is these days um, across the world. But it would be something very interesting to see. 
It's a superb question, and it's one I'm not able to answer. I'm not sure anybody is because the numbers have been so imprecise. But two of their other big sources of revenue have been taxing people, essentially, for all sorts of services in the territory they hold. That goes away. And their ability to do black market oil shipments out. And that seems to be significantly down as well. So um, they're losing two significant flows of revenue. Let me ask you a very quick question before we move on to the next subject. When Hillary Clinton takes office, this will clearly be an issue. Will it be an issue four years later? Is Iraq going to remain a central concern for U.S. foreign policy throughout the first term of the next administration? Not necessarily, uh, but not because I think, as I said, it's not it's not that I think Iraq is going to become stable in the next four years. Uh, on the other hand, I think you can never go wrong. Uh, uh, you can't ever underestimate the attention span of the American people. Um, so the fact that Iraq will remain messy, inconclusive, and unstable for certainly in the next four years and probably many more years to come does not automatically mean it's going to be an American political issue. I think. I think if nothing utterly catastrophic that involves Americans happens, uh, we will forget about it quite quite quickly. We're very eager to forget about it. I think we've already demonstrated that. I think you would argue that's already happened, that uh, Lyra's right, that if you think about this, this campaign, which for all sorts of other obvious reasons has not been a usual one, there's been very little discussion of Iraq. I mean, you've had Donald Trump making the case that we shouldn't have announced in advance the attack on Mosul as if you could have hidden uh, something like that and a target like that. But other than that, in terms of sort of broader strategy, what do we want to commit? Do we want to put ground troops back in, which neither candidate has wanted to do? Should we be contributing more money? What else could we do to stabilize? If, if that debate's gone on, I've missed it. And even though I think we had the first U.S. combat death in Mosul in, in, in Iraq in some time, uh, just a few days ago. But it's amazing how little little coverage there's been of that. Mm-hmm. Want to make your prediction here, Laura? Uh, my prediction is that I will be a little counter to both Rosa and David, that it will matter for two reasons. One, we have troops there now. It's very hard to extract troops. We've seen Obama uh, struggle with that, trying to extract troops from Afghanistan it would be hard for the next president, I think, to come in and make the case that, okay, we should withdraw. And we, I suspect there will be a small contingent of American troops still there. But as long as there are American, and I'm going to say it, boots on the ground, America will probably care to some extent. Secondly, I think that, you know, let's step back for a second and think about what Iraq looks like in the Mideast. It is a Shia majority country that still has a very strong Sunni population. That's very uncommon in most of the Mideast, which is dominated by Sunni, except for Shia Iran, and I guess Shia Bahrain. So I think to the extent that the next president cares about the Mideast, Iraq is always going to be a fault line in the Mideast of where these two sectarian places hit up against each other. That has always been the case. It will remain the case. And the current administration came in eight years ago and said, we or seven and a half years ago, and said, you know, we're going to refocus on places other than the Mideast. America has always been super focused on the Mideast, or at least since 9-11, and we need to look at the rest of the world. I suspect the next president will come in and take a new hard look at the Mideast and see that this is an, a region that America must pay attention to. I, my view is that people are going to look at this period from, you know, historically, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 
and they're going to talk about the 30-year war in the Middle East or the 40-year war in the Middle East. They're going to talk about multiple Gulf Wars for the United States that we went in in, in uh, the Bush administ- the first Bush administration and in the second Bush administration. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised if there were American troops there in significant numbers again in the next 10 years. Uh, and that's because the fault lines that exist are very, very deep, ancient in many respects, and because nobody is investing what's necessary to address and stabilize these these issues. People in the region aren't. Political leaders in the region aren't. People outside the region aren't. They, they kind of think you can do this halfway or short term and that ends up producing e- extended instability. You're going to have a rising Iran throughout the next several years. They will have their own interests in Baghdad. That will make a more pro-Iranian Iraq uh, anathema, particularly to Sunni extremists. Uh, there is not any prospect of a short-term stabilization in most of Syria. Even were a political deal to be reached, there d- doesn't seem to be a prospect. So this will fester. And as so long as it festers near American allies, near the place of oil, in a way that produces refugees and so forth, it's not going to go away. And so people may try to pivot away. People may raise other issues as being more important. Many other issues actually are more important. But this is going to be, you know, the team that does this in the next administration is going to be busy, periodically prominent. David, there was a hack last week that went after a, a big internet provider, brought down, you know, key portions of the internet. I'm sure you were shenanigans on Instagram and so forth were harder for you to uh, access. What is, does that mean anything in terms of this upcoming election? Does that mean anything in terms of uh, where we are in the current cyber spat with some of our enemies? Well, David, it wasn't just a hack. I mean, there are hacks of individual sites and, you know, the New York Times, FP, you know, people hack in to try to get those coffee cups all the time. Uh, they do. Yeah, they do. I just saw um, Maria wince again. You know. <laughs> right. she, the coffee cups. She was like, I love those coffee cups. And now it's like she goes to bed. It's a nightmare when for you her. Said that, <laughs> I was thinking that Maria was wincing when you said there were 53,000 listeners. And she's thinking, I don't have 53,000 coffee cups ready to send now. <laughs> okay. but, but back to the hack. This was a remarkable change in what we have seen in – uh, cyber conflict for two reasons. The first is it didn't go after an individual site. It went after a company that most people have never heard of called Dyne DNS. They're up in New Hampshire. And they are a, a firm that basically acts as one of those switchboards for the internet. So when you type in foreignpolicy.com, somewhere in the world, it's got to get switched into a series of boring digits. So that the I think the we should get on the can, internet at foreign policy. Maria, I make a note. Maria, make a note of that. Let's let's, <laughs> let's explore let's this go, internet let's thing. Let's go and digital. See how, yeah, let's go digital. Exactly. Go on. <laughs> this is what happens when you have foresighted leadership like David Rothkopf. Thank it's you. Like ahead of the ahead of the wave. We appreciate um, we appreciate your support, and we'll immediately <laughs> mail, send you a copy coffee, yeah, coffee we'll, mug. We'll mail you our thanks. <laughs> Right. So, so this um, this is one of the firms that basically translates what you type in the box into the set of digits that enable you 
to call up what you're calling up. It's boring. It's back office. And without it, you are nowhere. So what happened in this hack? A program was used. We don't know yet by whom. There are suspicions, but we don't know yet by whom. That basically went around much of the U.S. and the rest of the world and infected Internet of Things devices, security cameras, baby crib cameras, your toaster if it's Internet connected, your thermostat if it's Internet connected. Put a tiny program in it that figured out what its passwords were because most of those have like, you know, password, password or one, two, three, four, five. I can I can imagine David now changing his his password as we're speaking. On his toaster. Um, and I was worried and, about all the security cams at the <laughs> perimeter of your estate in Vermont. Yeah, right. <laughs> so um, it turned these things so that at the same moment, those devices, the everyday background garbage of our life, were attacking this company and sending them basically spam messages. So it turned all these devices into an army of simple robots and used them to basically slow the entire East Coast. Okay, now fast forward a few days or a few weeks to election day. I feel Supposing like you're telling somebody... this story in real time, so, you know. <laughs> yeah. So It's um, a good story. Don't yeah. let him get it's to you, a, David. It's it's a good it's a good yarn. So um, just envision us uh, here at the tiny podcast studio with our feet kicked up on our desks and smoking our pipes asleep. listening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, got, we got coffee, though. So if you kick forward to Election Day, you could imagine the kind of disruption just as people are trying to get to the polls. What polling place am I supposed to be at? Which you're going to try to walk out the down? door and your toaster is going to say, stop right there. <laughs> stop right there. Uh, uh, you guys are all going to go home and throw your toasters out tonight. I can just see it coming. So. Anyway, that is that's sort of a, a glimpse of what the future could look like. And it's pretty scary because it was so effective. David, I have a question for you. Do you we were told um, recently by the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee that there will be no hacking of online ballot machines because there are, in fact, no online ballot machines, that none of the voting machines on November 8th are hooked up to the Internet. Is that true? Most are not, not because of any great design, but because they're so old. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that they, they, they It's a little they bit like Sanger in that respect. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Be nice. Uh, why should he change now? You know, so most are not. Uh, some military... Uh, can tend to vote online if they're overseas. There have been a few other experiments of online or voting for uh, the disabled if uh, they can't get to the polling places and so forth. But by and large, they can't. What is online is the voter registration rolls. And that's, of course, what we believe Russian hackers have been scanning. We've got no evidence right now that anybody's been messing with them, but you probably wouldn't have that evidence until people went into the polls. Well, would is it then that uh, the results could be hacked into or messed with or otherwise influenced after they're all kind of tabulated from individual polling sites and put into some, I assume, massive database and sent in to the FEC or otherwise? Or let me rephrase that question. Okay. No, no. Well, just I, I just want to allow David to take a step back. What do you think is the likely scenario for an election day hack? Well, I would say, David, that there are three three big ones. One is what I just described, just general disruption of the 
uh, of general internet activity that just makes life difficult and slow that day, which could suppress voter turnout. Uh, the second is the, the voter registration one, which poses a different set of problems because you could show up and they couldn't find David Rothkopf on the rolls and because uh, he's newly registered wherever he is. And you file a provisional ballot, but you have so many of those, it just takes a long time to sort things out. That would pose a problem only if it gave Donald Trump or the Clinton campaign or someone else the ability to say we're suspicious of the total results in X state. Well, you if you went into suburban, if you went into suburban Philadelphia, and the uh, you know a bunch of the Republicans who showed up at a polling place were told they weren't on the register rolls, um, and that caused a big kerfuffle, and that happened at four polling places. Is that bad enough to really cause a problem? I don't know if it happened at four polling places, but if it happened at 40 or 400, it could well at least cast doubt in people's minds, particularly because there are a lot of people who are predisposed to believe that there's something going on in the course of this uh, election anyway, to use Donald Trump's favorite phrase. So um, I could imagine that being a significant problem. And there's another problem in Philadelphia, because Pennsylvania is one of the states that doesn't have 100 percent paper backup of the um, ballots you put in. So if you had to do an audit later on to make sure that you counted all the numbers right, there is no paper to go back to. There are five states that have no paper at all, and some like Pennsylvania that only have it in some localities. Any other questions for you? I didn't mean to interrupt your question. I just wanted to sort of envision it a little more clearly. I, no, I, I'm cool. I'm down with it. I think, okay. I, I mean, I think that the interesting thing here that, David, you're, you're drawing out is is the fantasy of the cyber Pearl Harbor where everything in the entire country comes to a crashing halt simultaneously is probably overly paranoid. But the, And the more likely reality is a mounting number of essentially disruptions, confusing disruptions that slow things down, screw things up for an hour here, an hour there, or it means that your electronic front door lock doesn't work that well for a couple of days, or your car is messed up in some way or another. You know, and, and cumulatively, those things could have a pretty profound impact on how Americans feel about our electoral leadership, how trust in trust in business, trust in commerce, uh, every everything you know across the board. But in some ways, it's probably harder to get a grip on than than the idea of you know some single bad guy or or set of bad guys who who launch a devastating attack. Where at least I think we we feel like we kind of at least know how to think about that. But the drip 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 of smaller disruptions. Uh, uh, just enough under the radar to make it hard to respond to in a decisive way, but cumulatively kind of draining our own faith in things working uh, is is a more likely future. I, I think that's right, and that's very much what you know Russian uh, information warfare is yeah, like. It's yeah. like, more like what's happened in Ukraine. And I think you, your last point was just right. It's exactly what's hard to respond to. Somebody turns out all the power from Maine to Florida. You know, you've suddenly got something that you might retaliate against in a in a very kinetic way. But if it's just things slowing down and getting screwed up and you can't quite figure out what's going on, that's a lot harder. Right. So you end up with asymmetric cyber warfare where people go in and cause just enough problem 
to have whatever the effect that they seek. It's a little bit like the scenarios that used to exist on terrorism. Somebody goes in, blows up four garbage pails in four different shopping malls on the Friday after Thanksgiving, and all of a sudden people stop going to shopping malls. You, 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 know, you sort of have to figure out what the tipping point is for public reaction and do just slightly more than the minimum in order to do that. Mm-hmm. Let me change the uh, subject briefly. In two weeks from the day that we're recording this roughly, or depending on when people are listening to it, could be less than two weeks, we will have had an election. Hillary Clinton will win the election. She'll win the election by quite a bit. Donald Trump will quickly be relegated to the scrap heap of uh, history. His voters will be a problem and we can deal with that separately. But here in Washington, the conversation will turn more vocally to what it is whispering about now. Who's going to get what job? Who's going to be the Secretary of State? Who's going to be the Secretary of Defense? Who's going to be the head of the CIA? Who's going to have all these you know, critical jobs in the, in the White House? And of course, in Washington, it has everybody in a tizzy because it affects you know, people's livelihoods and the real estate market and you know um, the, the you know the cocktail party circuit. You know, oh, who am I going to invite now? That guy used to be important. This person is now. You know, it's really critical stuff. But let's ask ourselves: Does it actually matter? Does it actually matter a who the specific appointees are? Because essentially, what you're doing is you're hiring a cadre of people. You're hiring a couple thousand people to do these jobs and. We already know who those couple of thousand people are and so changing a few names and where they are on the org chart probably doesn't make that big a difference. And secondly, does it actually matter because as we saw in the Obama administration, particularly on foreign policy and national security, things are controlled very heavily in the White House. It's really a handful of people in the White House. Hillary Clinton is very different from John Kerry. But the role of the State Department didn't change that much vis-a-vis the role of the White House. Clearly, Leon Panetta and Gates and Ash Carter are all different. Uh, But the role of DOD and how it functioned didn't change that much through all of them. So is this really primarily um, a Washington game that doesn't really matter very much? Or are there a couple of key things that we ought to be looking for because they really are significant? David, you're an old timer. What's your perspective? I'm not quite sure how to take that, David. First of all, I want you to know that I will make sure that we invite you to as many cocktail parties as we invited you to in the previous administration, no matter what happens. Thank you. Thank thank you. I can't remember the last time we held a cocktail party, but if we did, you'd certainly be on the list. This is the Eastern liberal conspiracy. Oh, oh okay. That, that's right. That's it's why the, I don't it's know. The, it's, it's, <laughs> it's the global media. It's the yeah. global media conspiracy. I don't get right? out much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you have young children, you know. What can you do? <laughs> it takes a while to get back on the party circuit. Um, uh, no. So I think the answer, David, lies in the last thing you said that these um, decisions are made increasingly in a centralized way. Every new administration comes in and talks about how they're going to devolve decision-making down closer to the departments and so forth and so on. And everyone has the same reaction, which is to centralize more and more in the White House, which is a subject of greater Washington dysfunction. So the people who get the very senior jobs that will be around Hillary Clinton, there's not much mystery about that. And those who get I think the national security portfolio at a moment that 
Secretary Clinton is hinting that she will take a more aggressive uh, posture regarding Syria and a range of other issues. I think those could be important. But, you know, you're going to see a lot of people who were in the first Obama administration took a few years out to make some money, get their lives back, reacquaint themselves with their children, and they'll be ready to come back in. So I, I think there will be not a huge amount of mystery about this, assuming that Secretary Clinton wins. Lara? So in 2009, I was covering the Pentagon. It was the first year of the Obama administration. In 2014, I was covering the State Department. It was the first full year of John Kerry as Secretary of State. And in both cases, I saw the the social the civil servants or the, at the Pentagon, the, the active duty military, very frustrated because they felt like pretty much what uh, Sanger just said, that the decision-making authority – um, had been taken away by people in the White House who had less experience, less time on the ground, um, hadn't really been trained to deal with foreign governments or with even foreigners, period, that they were more into kind of pushing papers and and making sure that the briefing notes were in tip top. And so one would hope that whatever administration comes in next, um, that the people who are running the bureaucracy are those who know actually how to do it and value on-the-ground experience. I, I think that people matter, but the person who matters most, obviously, is the president, and we already know a fair amount about the person who's likely to be president. I, you know, On the one hand, Hillary Clinton, having had the experience of being one of the somewhat frozen-out cabinet secretaries, I, I, one would hope that that would have her coming in with a greater appreciation of the potential value to the president that the cabinets, the departments and agencies can can bring, and therefore uh, someone who would be inclined to maybe set things up to maximize the input coming to her from the departments and agencies. That being said, I think the countervailing thing for Hillary Clinton is that she she and her, her inner circle are famously controlling and famously clannish. Uh, and I think that, that that may end up, and in fact, is unfortunately, as David uh, Rothkopf suggests, is overwhelmingly likely to trump everything else, no pun intended. Well, uh, but where you could end up with a bunch of people who are extremely competent but are more team players who are going to uh, not make waves, right? So, you know, Bill Burns is a wonderful guy. In fact, if I were president of the United States, which seems unlikely to happen in the next couple of weeks, and somebody said, who should be the next Secretary of State? I'd say Bill Burns should be the next Secretary of State. He was Deputy Secretary of State. He's had a career. But he's a career Foreign Service guy. And he's worked with Hillary as one of her deputies. And he's likely, if were he to be the Secretary of State or were Nick Burns to be the Secretary of State or any of the some of the names that have been talked about, to to be highly capable of running the department but unlikely to cause a lot of problems with the White House. If Michelle Flournoy is the Secretary of Defense, same thing. You know, there, there are a bunch of people out there who are likely to be highly competent and capable but unlikely to pull again. And, and that may be fine. Who needs a team of rivals? I'm not sure you... that that's entirely true of Flournoy, who is certainly very careful uh, but is also pretty tough. Uh, I mean she was willing to to be – to risk a certain amount of marginalization during the Obama administration several times to, in order to say, hey, no, what you're doing I you, think is you a big mistake. You worked closely with Michelle. Yeah, I did. No, and, and I and – I, you know, I – I think that she is someone who will definitely stand up 
for what she thinks is the best thing. She will in the end, you know, she'll fall into line if she's told that she has to. But I think that, you know, I don't don't think that the people are completely interchangeable. I think that the personalities make a difference. I also think that, you know, let's let's not turn up our noses at competence, right? Um, Because competence makes a huge difference at the end of the day in terms of whether information gets to the decision makers. Does it get there quickly? Is it right? All that kind of stuff. And, and, And I think that one of the things that that impressed me in the past and about Michelle Flournoy and that I think that if she is indeed the a Clinton nominee for Secretary of Defense that she would do that I'm not sure anybody else would do is that she is very focused on training and she is very focused on preparation. Uh, so she is somebody who But and she's also focused a lot on management. She yeah, I mean, she's really no, no. spent the past she, few she years has, to and herself. and in a very conscious way with with a very conscious uh, effort to say when you get all these political pointees who have no experience and don't know what they're doing, bad things happen. So let's make sure that we figure out how to get people who actually know something into the right positions. And and, and I don't think that can – you can have great as, – as you say, you can have great people in the mid-level and even quite senior positions. But if the president doesn't want to do what they want to do or if the president just doesn't want to hear what they have to say, it won't matter. But the the – it's – if the president is willing to hear what the cabinet secretaries have to say, then the difference between a department staffed with competent people who are trained and that is managed well uh, is a pretty huge difference. Okay, so look, I, you know, I've written a couple books on this. This is what I focused on. I, I don't want to give the impression that I think that people don't matter because the main point of the books is people do matter. Uh, or that the chemistry between people doesn't matter because that's the main thing that drives us, although I think it does ultimately say that the group is more important than the individuals in many respects or that experience doesn't matter because it clearly does matter. We are going to wrap up within the next three minutes. But before we do, I'm going to go to each one of you and I'm going to say, OK, you're you know Washington insiders and you're hearing all of these rumors. Name some of the names that we ought to be keeping an eye on. Uh, well, we've already talked about Bill Burns at State, Michelle Flournoy at the Pentagon. I would raise Mike Morell probably at the CIA. Uh, he's advising the Clinton campaign right now, and I assume that's one reason why. He was the deputy DCI for a while. Rosa? I don't get out much. So you have no speculation? I have no speculation. This is – by the way – this is clearly somebody who was trained in the Michelle Flournoy school <laughs> of I'm not going to stick my neck out in these kind of situations. And what I take I don't get out much to mean is that Rosa is expecting to go back into the administration. No, no, no. Rosa doesn't get out much, period, <laughs> and won't. And, and won't. <laughs> all right. David? Well, first of all, um, you know, I would have read Rose's thing the same way, but she wouldn't do that because she couldn't leave doing these ER broadcasts. No, I, I'm, I love no, them. No. They're very important to me, so, so Listen, <laughs> at this point, going into the administration, as Donald Trump's son said about the presidency, I've would got be better a step do. down. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Right. So uh, I would look, always look at for the White House chief of staff, the second most powerful person in the country who nobody sort of ever uh, hears about. Think about Ron Klain, who... Uh, did a lot of the debate prep for Hillary Clinton, worked for um, Al Gore for years, did uh, a lot of uh, work on Ebola for uh, the Obama administration, highly competent. So he's one possibility, I think, that uh, Name another. Might have Name another there. possibility. 
Uh, let's see. For Chief Seffel, some people believe that Jake Sullivan, who I think is more, much more likely to end up as the um, national security advisor, uh, might end up as chief of staff. I'm not entirely sure of that. Tom Nides, who was the deputy secretary of state for administration, has held a number of sort of sensitive jobs uh, in several Democratic administrations. When I first knew him, he was working for Mickey Cantor at the U.S. Trade Representative's office. You hear his name sometime for chief of staff. For secretary of state, you've mentioned uh, the Burns brothers. Uh, that's, uh, I think, very possible. I nerds, out- nerds, just this is a nerd alert. They're not brothers. They're not brothers, no. Um no, but, they, uh, but, but they're both cousins of Ed Burns. The f- no, no, they're not. <laughs> or Mr. Burns uh, or Mr. From, <laughs> from The Simpsons. <laughs> they are. But, they're uh, directly related to Mr. <laughs> Burns and The Simpsons. But uh, you know, both of those choices, by the way, would be welcomed inside the State Department because they're both uh, career, former career uh, foreign service officers who understand how the place operates. We'll run into just the criticism that, that you mentioned uh uh, David, but they're both pretty creative thinkers. Um, I think it's possible that John Kerry might be asked to stay around for a year the way Bob Gates was asked to stay around for a year as defense secretary and actually ended up staying two at the beginning of the Obama administration. When you think about what Kerry's been trying I to think, get done in I think Syria Donald, and elsewhere. I think Donald Trump has the same prospect of becoming secretary of state under Hillary Clinton. Equal. Equal prospect, huh? Yeah, equal. Um, it's equal to John Kerry staying on, but that's okay. Maybe John Kerry can okay. get his own TV show. Yeah. Or start his on, own network. Or on yeah. TrumpNet. Yeah. Um, it, it would actually, what I would think would hinge on, David, is whether or not Secretary Clinton felt she had too many other things that were going and she just wanted some continuity. My guess is that the real Secretary of State in a Clinton administration is going to be Hillary Clinton. And having her, had and, that job before, and her deputy uh, on all of that will be Bill Clinton. It, who, it, it, no, no, could, but seriously, could well be. from a serious yeah. perspective, you could have a lot of power concentrated in the White House inadvertently, because there's going to mm-hmm. be a tendency on big things to say, "Well, why doesn't Bill go and get involved?" Except for that whole pesky you know who CGI else thing. CGI is yeah. going to be gone. The other thing. thing don't underestimate the number of tr- t- chances where she may take to ask Barack Obama to go out and that's handle right. a hmm. big I, issue. I think that's I think that's very likely. I also think, by the way, that the I, I, I will end on this quiz note. I hope you all three get the answer right. <laughs> the person who has established themselves as the most authoritative, popular voice in the Democratic Party in the past year is Michelle Obama. Michelle Obama. David. I would I would certainly agree with that if if I didn't get to name David Rothkopf as a oh my god <laughs> thank you David um, and in my administration David you will serve uh, no you'll just serve but um, uh, no I <laughs> yeah I like red not white please I'll be serving drinks David. <laughs> at the cocktail but, parties right but the, but Michelle Obama is the answer and I have to say the Obama team. Michelle Obama and her husband have been spectacularly good in the waning weeks of this administration and the waning weeks of this campaign. They have sort of led down the high road. They have been extremely uh, capable on the stump. They have been selfless in a way that they have not been in their entire administration in support of Democratic candidates and particularly in support of their successor. And if you look back at prior 
um, administrations for the past 40, 50 years. I would say Barack Obama has done more to support the election of his successor than any recent American president. And that's, that's, that's really saying something. It's also saying the last things that you're going to hear on this episode of the ER because we've run out of time. Would have liked to have gone on longer, but traffic that kept me from getting here on time uh, has has forced us to truncate this particular episode. David, good luck up there in Cambridge, filling all those bright young minds with everything that you've picked up over the many years uh, since you first started covering the Hoover administration. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Law. This podcast, I have to say, has taken Make America Nerdy to a whole nother level. Well, I think this one was really deep. This was deep. But I have to say, America is nerdy. Everybody has an inner nerd. I, America, get in touch with your inner nerd. Maybe it, America should get in touch with their inner nerd, but I don't think America is in touch with their inner well, nerd. Well, I think – look, I mean we're about to elect arguably the, nerdiest the biggest president ever. wonk wow. president of the United – I mean she will be the first president. She may be the most experienced. She will be the first Secretary of State since James Buchanan. But she will be the biggest wonk to be elected president in modern history. And that, for wonks everywhere, should be great news because we will really get down into the weeds. Thank you, David. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, everybody, for listening. You have been listening to Foreign Policies the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.